0: As I record this podcast, thousands of people are in Sharm el Sheikh in Egypt at the 27th Annual Climate Talks, also known as COP27. And it's day 10 of these 27th Annual Climate Talks already. The event is brought to you by the largest plastic producer in the world, Coca-Cola. There are 44,174 registered participants there, more than the reported attendance figures at last year's COP in Glasgow. There are also almost 200 countries represented. So now that I've rattle this off, I'd like to ask you to pause for a moment and think about what I just said. There are annual climate talks which are on their 27th installment. If this was a TV miniseries, it'd be the longest TV miniseries in the history of the world, and we would be on season 27. They've been going on like almost always for 10 days in a row, and there are at least a couple more days to go before they conclude. And they've attracted over 44,000 people, as I said, from 200 countries, and a very, very long list of companies, consultants, NGOs, youth activists, indigenous peoples, small island developing states, and many, many others. And As I also said, the climate talks are sponsored by the largest plastic polluter in the world, Coca-Cola, a corporate giant that makes 4,000 plastic bottles from oil every second. That's 4,000 bottles from plastic from oil every second. Meanwhile, as the climate talks concerned with fighting back against the climate emergency continue, a lot of the same participants, specifically the major oil companies, are on track to increase oil production. A report by an NGO called Oil Change International, just out and headlined Investing in Disaster, shows the precise breakdown of the top companies actively making the climate emergency worse. And I'm just going to read their names for fun. Here are the top 10. First is Saudi Aramco. Second is the National Iranian Oil Company. Third is Total, the French. Fourth is CNNOC, the Chinese. Then it's at number five, Petrobras, the Brazilians. Chevron. Chevron is at number six, Shell at seven, Exxon at eight, Italy's ENI at nine, and ConocoPhillips at 10. All of them are pushing new oil and gas to ensure that we definitely breach two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial times, now that we're certain that we are breaching 1.5 degrees centigrade. Now, all these companies, of course, are at the annual climate talks, because why not? And in a fun fact, you'd be pleased to hear that the CEO of BP, who's comfortably in the top 15, is disguised at the climate talks as a delegate for Mauritania. And why does he do that? He does that so that he can go inside the room where the government negotiators are gathered in order to participate or comment or suggest changes to the text of whatever COP27 ends up agreeing on. The way these annual climate talks are organized, at the core, you have government delegations who are basically sitting down to agree measures, if they can, to fight back against climate change. Hypothetically, the private sector, NGOs, civil society, indigenous people are not in that room. They are all in a trade fair type environment around that core of government negotiators from up to 200 countries. However, the CEO of BP, by getting a Mauritania accreditation, is able to go inside that room and poison whatever it is that he decided to poison. Of course, it should be unacceptable. It's also unacceptable that the people driving the disaster are there in the first place deciding on the outcome. But there you are. I mean, who does that? And it does get a bit worse. There are over 600 lobbyists for coal, oil, and gas there selling their wares and their propaganda. And of course, emissions are still rising, which shouldn't be a surprise, and there are exactly zero countries on a 1.5 degrees aligned pathway. So that's the context in which these climate talks are taking place. Welcome to episode 67 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy podcast with me, Asad Rizouk. I am so happy you're here. Thank you. Let's take a quick tour through the history of these climate talks. The global legal construct, if you will, around climate change was born in 1992 when something called the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was negotiated at the UN Conference on Environment and Development. Now, that UN Conference on Environment and Development is more commonly known as the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. So that's all the way back in 1992. Most countries agreed then that we are interfering with the Earth's climate by pumping enormous quantities of climate warming gases into the atmosphere. All the way back in 1992, most countries agreed that the gases, in turn, interfered with our natural climate cycles, therefore threatening in time more floods, droughts, extreme heat, etc., than we can handle. They also understood all the way back then that there was increased risk of the Arctic and the Antarctic ice melting, of rapidly shrinking glaciers in the Himalayas, and of sea levels rising. And you may not remember her, but many years before Greta Thunberg, there was Severn Cullis-Suzuki. Severn founded an environmental children's organization in 1989. She was nine at the time. Three years later, so now age 12, she attended the very same Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro that I was describing. There she became famous as the girl who silenced the world for five minutes. Why? Because unimpressed by all the heads of state and government officials there, she said in her speech that she was afraid to go out in the sun because of the hole in the ozone layer, and that she was afraid to breathe the air because she did not know what chemicals were in it. And frankly, three decades later, she should still be afraid. Now, that 92 Earth Summit was a historic first. And there were two consequences which play out to this day from that summit. The first one is that the world started debating the relationship, which is very complex, between economic development on the one hand and environmental sustainability and how to balance both. And then the second thing was that we agreed all the way back in 92 that countries had what is called common but differentiated responsibilities in fighting Global climate change. What that means is that industrialized countries, which were richer and better equipped to confront the issue, but also historically pumped the majority of the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere to create the problem to begin with, should take the lead in fighting climate change. And that's still playing out now because let's just say that they aren't really taking the lead in any. Very, very clear way, or at least not until extremely recently. And second, there is still disagreement on something which is called loss and damage, which is how to compensate the companies that are at the front line of suffering from climate change from these disasters, which are now occurring with increased frequency already. Now, That Earth Summit document was a beautiful document at a beautiful moment in time, in a beautiful city, and so everybody signed it. But once they left Rio, the wealthy nations of Europe, North America, and Australia basically promptly ignored the document. And that was a foretaste of decades of climate change talks that followed. And a lot of the reason why these talks are going nowhere is that rich countries in particular overlooked the part that clearly indicated that there was a difference in responsibility between them and poorer countries. And all the way back to the 1990s, U.S. President George H.W. Bush gave a sneak preview, really, of the difficulties the world would face in fighting back because he declared that the American way of life was not negotiable. Now, I have no idea what he meant because clean energy and a cleaner planet actually enhance livelihoods, improve health and quality of living. But I suspect that he meant that Americans wanted to keep their ultra-large refrigerators, gas-guzzling cars, energy-inefficient buildings, and then trillions of supermarket plastic. Yet, at the same time, somehow they were going to decrease their dependence on burning oil and gas. We know how that movie turned out. And from 1995, so three years after the Earth Summit, climate talks became an annual event where countries turned up, then were updated on the latest in climate science, then exhaustively discussed policy responses, negotiated joint efforts, adopted declarations, and then promptly forgot about the whole thing and left. And that was the story until 2005 when something called the Kyoto Protocol was ratified. Now, the Kyoto Protocol was important at the time because it was the first concrete attempt to move from symbols to action by basically drafting the private sector in and presenting to the private sector the opportunity to make money while saving the world at the same time. And the Kyoto Protocol was a very courageous effort at the time to attack the problem globally, and it was laser-focused on reducing pollution everywhere through market-based mechanisms. Now, these market-based mechanisms had proved to be an unquestionable success in the United States in the 1990s. In a different context, when the 1990 Clean Air Act included pioneering cap and trade plants. Now what these did is they created markets basically that attacked sulfur emissions, which were generated by fossil fuel combustion at power plants, and resulted in the dumping of an enormous amount of harmful chemicals literally raining on people and places. And within a few years, by distributing pollution reduction certificates, in effect, the entire problem was gone. Now, that was a specific U.S. case study that was applied in one country under specific legislation. The Kyoto Protocol tried to take similar market-based mechanisms and then turn them into a global instrument under a market-based mechanism, what you might know today as carbon credits or carbon allowances or carbon offsets. And the Kyoto Protocol failed miserably to dent emissions. And the reason it failed is because it was full of loopholes and people were running around effectively pretending to decrease emissions, earning carbon credits for these, making more money, but not making any difference to speak of on the ground. So where does this get us to? The world agreed in 92 that climate change was a huge problem. Emissions kept rising. 10 years of climate talks between 1995 and 2005 delivered the Kyoto Protocol in 2005. But emissions kept rising. The world basically tanked the Kyoto Protocol in 2012 and emissions kept rising. The world woke up again in Paris in 2015 and produced the Paris Agreement. But emissions kept rising. The main difference then was that after the Paris Agreement came into force, companies started feeling the heat. And so to continue business as usual for as long as possible, they created a meaningless tagline, which you might have heard of. It's net zero by 2050. And that then allowed them to hide while pretending to do something without doing anything. And so emissions Kept rising. Then a global pandemic hit, energy use decreased dramatically, as did industrial activity, flights, for a sustained period of time. But guess what? Shortly after the end of the pandemic, emissions kept rising. Then the world congregated in Glasgow in 2021 at COP26 and emissions kept rising. And here we are doing the same thing all over again in Sharmishek in 2022. So where are we today? I'm going to give you just a few data points. The first one is that Exxon, Chevron, Shell, and Total made $60 billion together in profits in July, August, and September of this year. That's $60 billion. Yet they and other oil companies also benefited from subsidies of $200 billion last year in 2021. So what you're watching live is the biggest, fastest transfer of wealth. Ever from society to the industry fueling climate breakdown and its shareholders. Because a lot of that money is going into share buybacks and dividends. So that's one data point. But we are also in an era where very concrete climate action is, in fact, taking place all over the world. I do my best to chronicle this climate action each week on Sundays in a tweet which is called Good Climate News of the Week. And if you click on that tweet any Sunday, there is a thread of tweets going back almost three years just listing for each week the good climate news of that week. And if you try clicking through, what you'll see is that there is an enormous amount of climate action taking place all around the world. We are definitely getting somewhere. We will decarbonize. We will electrify everything. However, we won't do that before we hit at least probably two degrees of warming above pre-industrial times, with consequences that I think... Almost everyone doesn't really understand, me neither, because they're unprecedented. Let's bring it all together. Nothing is going to happen at COP27. Although, after 27 attempts, climate talks are recognized and followed by a lot of engaged citizens around the world. So that's a good thing. And in particular, those without a voice, almost always from the global south, have at the very least the climate talks where they can shout from the roofs for two weeks. And that's also good. If you are a Pakistani community, for example, that's been completely flooded, Because of worsening extreme weather driven by fossil fuel emissions, the climate talks are somewhere where you can get to to try and do something about it and to talk to ultimately all the countries in the world in one place. And so the climate talks definitely serve a therapeutic need around the world. And for that reason, we should probably keep them around but not focus our efforts on thinking that that is where the action is taking place. The climate action, that is. Because if you're looking for climate action, it's elsewhere. I've chronicled a lot of that climate action in previous podcasts, and I continue to chronicle positive climate action on my social media feeds and in my book. Saving the Planet Without the Bullshit, which is going to be published globally on the 1st of December. So what do we do about all this? Well, we need to continue doing what we are doing. We need to continue protesting. Protest is good. That is peaceful protest, of course, but it is good. It is achieving result. It is protests that are keeping the pressure on politicians to do something. And that's certainly the case in countries like the UK or the United States. Consumer pressure on companies also works. Litigation works. Communication works. And then for those of you going into the job market, take action by joining the clean tech space, or the renewables space, or by fighting deforestation, or frankly, by taking any job and then trying to influence what your employer is doing at a very local level, starting from the plastic in the cafeteria, to vetting clients, to vetting purchasing decisions. And let's not forget war. The Ukraine war is very clearly accelerating the switch to renewables as a safer alternative to hydrocarbons supplied by autocrats and dictators. So, look, never mind that COP27 has been hijacked by oil and gas companies. Let's just recognize things the way they are. But let's also recognize that climate action is taking place all over the world, and then you and me can do more about it every day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode 67 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy with me, Esad Rizouk, and have a great couple of weeks.